Real quick before the episode starts, if you'd like to listen to us on your streaming platform of choice, sign up for a mailing list to be the first to know about episode drops or ask questions to upcoming guests, please follow us at bandwithpodcast.com. And of course, if you like what you hear, follow, comment, or subscribe to the pod, however it is that this is getting to your ears. Why, hello there. This episode of Bandwidth Coast to Coast is brought to you by the United States Sugar Cartel. Well, no, not really. Only part of that is kind of true. The U.S. Sugar Cartel hasn't started openly making podcast sponsorships, but they very much do exist, and they are the focus of this episode's interview. Cartels, as you may recall from episode 20 with Yon Grillo, is when a group of actors band together to fix the price or supply within a given industry. We typically hear about cartels when it comes to organized crime, especially with the incredible uptick in violence south of the border has increased the word's use. The truth, though, is that many cartels are operating right now, in the open, in above-board industries. Some are starting to question if several tech companies are acting together as a cartel. Internet service providers have been accused multiple times of monopolies and cartel-like behaviors. But the focus of this episode is what emerges when government controls an entire industry. So, how did it come to be that there's a coordinated effort involving many actors within our government to fix the price, supply, and trade of sugar within the borders of the United States? In short, it's a story of seemingly good intentions gone awry. In long, well, you'll just have to hear it for yourself. I want to leave you with a thought, though. No matter what one's stance is on capitalism, government intervention, or any sliding scale of either, it's worth studying and keeping in mind what can emerge when an entity has complete and absolute control of a basic resource. If one entity controls all that comes and goes, wouldn't the best course of action for those within that control attempt to influence that main entity? Should that strategy prove winning, wouldn't everyone within that circle fight like hell to maintain the status quo? even if the change would overwhelmingly benefit those they serve? If any of that isn't sounding familiar, come back to it in the next 90 minutes. My interview today is with Colin Grabo, policy analyst at the Cato Institute, whose work focuses on domestic forms of trade protectionism. Colin has studied the sugar cartel in the U.S. extensively and shares his knowledge of how it got started, what this ends up meaning for consumers and industry, as well as the political situation that's formed and continues to keep it in place. The whole thing honestly sounds like a script for a movie based off of Monopoly, with characters named the Fanjul brothers, who meddle in government affairs behind the scenes, occasionally interrupting the President of the United States while they have an affair with an intern, or senators from Florida claiming that if we don't continue fixing the price of American sugar, we will all be overrun by strip malls. The truth is often stranger than fiction. Welcome to U.S. Sugar. All right. Well, thank you, Colin, for joining and coming on the pod. Um, so real quick, so we have it, would you mind introducing yourself and we're going to get rolling from there? Sure. My name is Colin Grabo. I am a policy analyst at the Cato Institute's Herbert uh, Stiefel Center for Trade Policy Studies. 
And uh, mostly what I do is I focus on uh, domestic forms of trade protectionism, including uh, things like the Jones Act and uh, more relevant to today's conversation, the US sugar program. Sugar, yes. Uh, well, thank you. I appreciate you again taking the time and coming on the pod and talking about sugar. And then you know later also talking about the Jones Act. Um, I'm definitely very interested. Um, I actually found your paper uh, by happenstance uh, a few years ago, like shortly after you published it on the sugar cartel. And I had no, well, I have an active interest in sugar just because it's becoming like an increasing consumption, like we're increasingly consuming it, right? And it's in more and more and more and more. Um, so when I read that, it was quite shocking. Um, so I'm really excited to talk to you about that. But first, so every guest, when I first have them on, I always ask them the same question. So I'm going to ask it to you to kind of get us started in a different way, uh, which is what do you like to do that makes you happy? What do I like to do that makes me happy? Um, well, I, I, I feel I count myself very fortunate in that I, I have a job that I enjoy and that uh, does bring me uh, an immense amount of satisfaction uh, outside of work. Um, <laughs> most of my time is taken up by taking care of my kids, which, which, which I enjoy sometimes more, more than others, but it is an overall a very enjoyable experience. And, uh, you know, I'd say my, my biggest hobby, hobby aside from family life and, and my day job is, uh, I've always been an avid fan of soccer. It's, it's something that's always, uh, brought me a lot of, a lot of joy, uh, both as a player and a spectator. Nice. Do you still uh, kick it around? Well, you know, ever since COVID hit, um, it's it's been over a year since uh, since I played in a competitive game. So uh, who knows? By the time this is all over with, uh, maybe my my uh, my playing days will be behind me. Um, won't be well, uh, won't be worth. Uh, uh, I'll be just totally worthless as a player. We'll see. <laughs> to be determined. You'll always have the indoor court. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that's that's great. Uh, do you have a team? Do you have a particular soccer team you watch? Uh, well, my wife is from Barcelona, Spain, so uh, I really have no choice but to be a fan of uh, FC Barcelona. Well, there's much worse teams you could be forced yeah, to no, do. For, it's not the worst thing in the world. You're absolutely right about that. Um, yeah, they they won they they won the the cup like the Champions League like a couple several years ago, right? Like ten eight, eight years ago, maybe. Yeah, may, yeah, I, I definitely remember uh, when they played against uh, Manchester United and beat them. I think two zero, two one, something like that. Um, that's the last one I can recall off the top of my head. Uh, they've done pretty well in domestic competitions, not as well in Champions League lately, and this year is not going so well. <laughs> I forget that there's still sports going on sometimes. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, no, no spectators there, but yeah, people are out there doing their thing. Uh, competitions are being held and. Uh, yeah, it's still out there. Uh, don't have as much time in my hands as I'd like to be able to consume it all, but uh, yeah, it, it is it is going on. Well, that's great. Uh, I like I I like uh, soccer when I watch it. I never take the time for it really, or really any sports. I kind of just like gave up on it at some point uh, intentionally. You're probably uh, better off. You're probably better off. You know, devoting <laughs> your your time to more productive enterprises. Uh, yeah. So don't don't feel bad about that. Yeah, nothing, at least that's nothing what I tell to be ashamed myself. of. Oh, no, no. It's just, it is what it is. But yeah. I did have fun watching Barcelona in that Champions League. That's why I said it, because I was abroad and some of the people that I was ah. uh, studying with were from Barcelona. So they were very passionate and into it. Well, so it if you're going to try to get somebody hooked on soccer, uh, you know, until recently, uh, Barcelona is a great club to, to, to make that introduction to the sport uh, because they used to play it uh, the way it's meant to be played. So, yeah. Hmm. 
that's a that's a astute i like that observation i'm gonna watch some of it maybe and see how that plays out um but okay so back to sugar a different yes. type of uh spectator sport maybe uh so uh i i want to ask you for a definition first and then i kind of want to go into it would you mind defining what a cartel is for me a cartel uh yeah I, i'd say a, you know I don't know if there's a dictionary definition, but uh, the way I think about it in my head is uh, it's an arrangement by uh, a number, a limited number of players in a market to reduce competition and to boost profits to themselves and to uh, basically organize uh, at the expense of the consumer. Okay, so in, in it's all, so maybe like an easy way to use a analogy to get a, a deeper understanding of it. A monopoly is when there's one player that's capitalizing the entire market. And a cartel would be when there is a consortium of a uh, small handful of players that are working together to kind of set rules of the game of how the rest of the market is played. Yeah, and basically manipulate how the market works. Uh, I think maybe a classic case of a cartel uh, traditionally has been uh, OPEC um, with regard to the oil market. Uh, they would get together and decide uh, whether to boost production or reduce uh, uh, re reduce oil output uh, in the pursuit of you know hitting certain price targets. Um, you know, with the advent of U.S. shale oil, you know that, that's been a little bit less workable in some players outside of, of of OPEC. But for a long time, I think OPEC was maybe the, the classic case of a, of a cartel when you, you use that term. Right, which is uh, a group of Middle Eastern countries mostly that are. Uh, easy oil producers where producing oil, a barrel is low. So they're able to uh, make a, a higher profit margin, uh, margin on it. Because shale oil too in America only becomes a big tipping point once it gets to a profitable enterprise, right? Which is like $70 a barrel or something like that. Yeah, I don't Yeah, I think I think somewhere in that neighborhood. Um, yeah, I won't pretend to be a, an expert on the, on the oil market, but yeah, I, I think you're correct. Right, right. I'm, I'm trying to get a little bit of the breadth of cartels and using that as an example. So, okay, so that makes sense. So a group of uh, players in a market who work together to manipulate that market to their advantage in some, in some means. Um, so I'm going to quote you, and then I'm going to ask you to expand upon it. Does that sound good? Yeah, sounds okay. great. So you have, uh, this is from your paper. Uh, it's candy coated sugar cart. Uh, what, what's the, the full title the of it? Candy coated cartel. The candy coated cartel. I really like that. Um, okay. So you say we have in effect the absurd situation in which the federal government the country's leading, uh, it's kind of, I'm sorry, the country's lead enforcer in halting anti-competitive actions simultaneously finds itself in the position of cartel ringleader. Uh, would you mind, mind expanding upon what you mean by that, where the federal government is supposed to be enforcing something when it's actually acting as a cartel ringleader? Yeah, so uh, the federal government, um, I think, maybe a lot of your listeners have heard of at one time or another, the, the government will take uh, antitrust actions. Um, the, these are meant to, you know, at least the idea or, or, or as the idea is, is, is conceived, this would be uh, when the US government would take action to, um, to expand competition or prevent competition from being reduced. Uh, sometimes, for example, uh, companies will have to get approval from the government to have a merger because out of fear that uh, if the merger goes through, there won't be enough competition in the marketplace. So the government has that role. Um, 
But what's, what's interesting to me is that in this example, the government is, as I put it in the paper, functions as a bit of a cartel ringleader. Um, to, in order for a cartel to function, you know, like I said, uh, there needs to be some coordination among, among the members. And if you have a country as big as the United States and you have a lot of different actors, that coordination can be quite difficult. But if the federal government steps in and acts as a coordinator, uh and, and gets all these uh different actors to work in concert then it, you can pull off the cartel and i think that's what we find with regard to the u.s sugar program okay how how are they finding themselves so i'm going to first ask you what they're doing and then i'm going to ask how we got there right so what are how, what are they doing to find themselves in the position to be coordinating a sugar industry as large as the u.s economy yeah, so um, basically, you know, the, the U.S. government to to make this cartel work, uh, it takes a few different a few different actions. Um, it it does what are called um, price support loans, which is the, these are these are loans made uh, by the government to sugar processors, and they basically guarantee that processors of sugar will get a certain minimum income. Uh, so every pound of sugar that they put up as collateral, the government will give them so much money. Usually it's in the neighborhood of, of 20 cents uh, per pound, uh, either for cane sugar or, or beet sugar. Beet sugar, I think they get a little bit more. And so right there, the government is effectively setting a, a minimum amount of income that they will get because if the marketplace does, does not, um, where the price of sugar is less than that amount, say, you know, 20 to 25 cents per pound, uh, the sugar processors will just say, well, fine, you know, you, you keep our collateral and, and in effect, you know, you've paid us with that uh, and we'll just keep the money from the loan and you, you take the sugar's collateral. Um, but so the government has an interest in, in boosting the price of sugar. And there's, there's two ways, well, you know, in order to in, in manipulate a market and ensure that um, there's a certain price minimum so that the farmers don't give up their collateral and they do pay back the government, uh, you know, we have supply and demand. And so what the government does is it makes an active effort to restrict supply. Um, it does that through basically two different means. Uh, one is it, and this is crazy to me, the US government actually sets what's called an overall allotment uh, uh, quantity or quota, uh, I believe. Um, this is, it basically says how much each uh, actor in the sugar market um, is allowed to sell. It's, it's a quota system. It says, okay, you know, this the sugar processor, you get to sell so much sugar, you get to sell so much sugar and so on and so forth. Uh, and the other thing it does, so that, that takes care of the domestic side, but then you have to worry about sugar uh, being imported from abroad and the government also limits the amount of sugar that can come in. So we have these restrictions on, on supply uh, that, that can come into the country. And um, so, so yeah, it's, 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 it, it, it limits the amount, it, it sets how much sugar there is out there, which, you know, an artificial uh, constraint on supply is going to boost in, you know, assuming that demand holds uh, constant will, uh, um, will lead to higher prices and basically functions as a welfare scheme to enrich uh, Rich the nation's sugar farmers at, at the expense of our consumers. Yeah. Uh, okay. I'm gonna I'm gonna ask to just make sure I'm understanding this correctly to break a little bit of that down. Yeah. So you said yeah. price support loans, right? So that's what it's called, right? Yes. 
Um, and by the way, keep riffing. I'm just doing this to make sure that uh, it's underlined because I, I have some couple questions I'm leading towards. Um, okay, so sure. um, price support loans. So those are almost acting as a subsidy in, in essence, right? If I'm I understand yes. this correctly. So they're yes. saying, hey, you uh, sugar farmer of either beet or sugar cane, um, if mm -hmm. you give me collateral, which is a pound of sugar, or you know, obviously some pounds of sugar, um, I will give you a loan guaranteed for 20 cents per pound of sugar and then a little bit more for beet sugar, right? Um, so a little bit of incentive to do that maybe. Uh, you give me that and then I'll give you a loan. And then you can go, did they then go uh, plant the next year's crop? Is this like something they give at the end? Or? Yeah, so the, the idea here is that these, these loans are made uh, so that the processors can buy up uh, sugar from, from the farmers and then once they, they, they buy it up and the, the sugar is processed, so it comes in as sugar beets, they process it and it leaves as refined sugar, same thing with, with the sugar cane. Uh, once they uh, process it and then sell it, uh, sell the refined product into the marketplace, then they have the money that can be paid back to the federal government. Okay, so they, they give the loan with the collateral and then, which is more product, right? Um, yep. And then they go and try to create a next year's crop or something along those lines. Um, and if it turns out that the price that they are going to get on the open market for it um, is, let's just say it was 20 cents that they're getting from the loan, it's 18 cents. They're gonna say, well, hey, 18 cents or you know, two cents per pound times however many pounds I have uh, is good enough for me to say, forget it, just keep, keep the collateral. Um, and forget about it, which in essence, these loans are acting as subsidies. Yeah, they're basically, uh, like I said, like a price support, like it's a, it's a guaranteed minimum that you're going to get for your product. Uh, because yeah, you know, any day of the week, a farmer will take 20 cents over 18 cents, like in, in your example. Right. Okay. And what, I, I'm going to pause here and then I want to finish this out a little bit more into like sure. how, the, how the, I'm going to call it the emergent effects of what this situation creates in the marketplace when an actor is... I mean, essentially, the federal government is acting as in its interest to artificially create a more expensive market, because if it doesn't, then it owes these loans. Is that essentially yeah, what's happening? It's the, the emergent quality? It's in the government's own interest to make sure that uh, the price of sugar uh, is at least the amount that they, they extended these loans for. Uh, and ideally, you know, it would be a little bit in excess of that because they don't want the collateral. They don't want these guys, you know, they don't want to take ownership of the sugar. They just want to get repaid on the loans. And the right. best way to do that is ensure a, an artificially inflated price for sugar. Right. That's, a, that's a, a strange emerging quality uh, in this type of uh, game situation. Um, so what, why did they set up this program in the first place? We've had uh, government manipulation to one degree or another of, of the sugar market, basically going back to the country's founding. Uh, there were uh, there was a you know tariff placed on sugar imports from I think 1789, and but but the U.S. sugar program in, in its modern iteration, I believe, can be traced back to uh, the 1930s during the Great Depression. Uh, I think there was an appetite back then to, or at least the mentality uh, of the federal government at the time was to um, support industry. And this was seen as a means of supporting US farmers. Uh, uh, you know, we, 
It doesn't hurt that you know farmers vote. Uh, and, and sugar, let's be clear, sugar farmers are not unique uh, in the US and United States. All kinds of crops um, qualify for different types of subsidies, but this is perhaps you know, arguably the most extensive um, or most heavily uh, manipulated uh, form of government intervention, most heavy handed um, form of government intervention that we see in the agricultural marketplace. Really? That's, in, that's interesting. So it's the most aggressive you would like, essentially? I, I would say I can't think of any other example where the government um, goes to such an extent to, you know, for example, um, where they try to manipulate supply so aggressively, uh, where they try to, uh, I, I can't think of any other crop, for example, where there are those um, allocations where they say, okay, you know, you produce so much, you produce so much, you produce so much. Uh, and you know you're not allowed to sell more than your your allotment. Um, I think it's the most manipulated uh, area of the agricultural market. Certainly, yeah. It's interesting. Um, I want to come back to that uh, a little bit deeper in a second because the allotments. Because I was reading about that um, when I was refreshing uh, a lab through your paper. Um, so does does any other? And if you don't know this, that's okay. But uh, is there is there any other agricultural program that does this type of collateral loan? I don't know. I don't, I don't have an answer to that. Uh, I'm not aware of it. Uh, none that I can think of doesn't mean it doesn't happen, but um, I'm not aware of, I'm not aware of one if, if, if it does exist. Yeah. Cause I thought that it was quite strange. Not that I'm no, by no means some, any expert on agricultural subsidies, but when I was, when I first came across this, I, I, I thought it was a strange it creates this strange incentive, like these emergent pressures of what's going to come out of it, you know, and the government's interest was quite shocking. Um, so I, uh, could you explain the allotments? Because there's actually a, a decent leader to the next thing I was going to ask. Yeah, so uh, like I said, uh, you know, every every actor in the, in the market, every sugar processor is, is, a, is able to sell um, so much refined sugar into the marketplace. Um, I believe that the way it works is this, um, the government calculates how much sugar they think will be consumed in a year. And then uh, at least 85% of that amount uh, is given to domestic uh, uh, producers of, of sugar um, with the remaining 15% to be filled by imports. Uh, if memory serves me correctly, not every, we don't hit that 85% every year sometimes uh, the producers will come up short and won't meet their allotment, in which case the amount of imports will be expanded. Um, but yeah, it's it's basically a way of restraining supply. And and these are based and these are based on historical production figures. So, you know, the the production um, the allotment you're given one year will be based on what you produced in previous years. So it's not it's not random. They're you know they they do look at history and then you know if a factory gets closed. Um, a yeah, sugar processor gets closed. Well, they'll they'll divvy up that that allotment to someone else, and um, or if, you know, one person buys another operation, then their allotment will will grow to reflect that that uh, larger um, their uh, greater significance in the market. Share the pie, yeah. Um, yeah. Are those are those allotments um, by producer? Like, or are they by state? Or are they by state then by producer? They they are by I believe they are by state, and then within those states, it's it's divided up among the different actors within within that state, within the producers uh, within that state. Yes, 
And if you're curious, you know, which states are producing the sugar, as I said before, there's two types of sugar. There's cane sugar and beet sugar. Cane sugar is found, I believe, in Florida, uh, Texas, uh, Louisiana. And it used to be in Hawaii, but their last um, uh, sugar plantation uh, closed. And then uh, the beet sugar is primarily found in, in the Midwest. Um, I think even like Minnesota, I want to say, uh, you know, produces beet sugar. So, yeah. Yeah. Uh, cane, cane sugar grows in like tropical, more warm, yes, air, warm yeah, uh, exactly. uh, humid areas. And then beet is, it's a, it's a beet. So you yeah, can imagine yeah. where it's going to grow. <laughs> yeah. Uh, okay. Yeah. I was actually going to ask you about Hawaii because it was like uh, 46,000 acres or hectares. I'm, I'm not exactly sure which one it was. I just remember that digit. I could also be wrong. But um, it was a, a significant amount, and then Hawaii stopped. Um, was, was there any reason for that? Was it just not lucrative enough for that plant? To, and it was a single uh, organization, a single. Yeah, I, I, my, my understanding, um, and, and it's it's my, my memory is a little bit hazy here. I haven't, I haven't read about this in a while. Um, is that you know at one time the sugar industry was was very significant for Hawaii, and then over time it, it, it atrophied. Um, I believe that. Uh, that, that's probably for various reasons. I think cost of labor is cost of labor. You know, I think sugarcane is fairly labor intensive. And uh, as people's standard of living went up and cost of labor went up, um, that impacted it. Also, you know, you're in Hawaii, your land, uh, it's like, well, I could grow sugar on it or I could redevelop this into a resort or something like that. So there were those pressures for, you know, alternative uses uh, of, of the land. Um, yeah, and then obviously it doesn't work to Hawaii's advantage that it's uh, you know one of the most geographically isolated and remote places uh, uh, on Earth, which you know I, I have to think figures into its transportation costs and the co competitiveness of its industries. Yeah, it puts more pressure on just making a resort. I think, right? Yeah, yeah, because I mean that, they <laughs> yeah. they come to you in that instance, right? Um, yeah. that's interesting. I, I guess I I didn't think about uh, I hadn't thought that because I I thought it was interesting because it's. I mean, I want to. I wanted to ask you this. So, if I'm, um, I'm going to give you a hypothetical here. If I'm a Joe Beet farmer, and I live in Minnesota, and I want to start planting more, you know, I want to start selling beet sugar. Is there a way for me to get an allotment? That you know, that that's a good question. That unfortunately I don't have an answer to. It's something that I I was curious about myself. What if you have new actors, new entrants into the market? How do they get involved in the in the allocation game, and how does that work? And I was never able to find a satisfactory answer to that question. So uh, I feel bad, but unfortunately I'm not in a position to answer that. And it's it's something I'm. So I don't know if this is an industry where people just there isn't much market entry, or the way you get in is by trying to you know buy out an existing player or I, I don't know I don't know unfortunately I think the likely deduction from that given that you I'm sure you spent some time on it is that it's probably very hard and it's enough of a disincentive to even think about it right like yeah <laughs> you know I mean honestly because like I mean farming yeah. is incredibly expensive I mean the, the the cost of labor sure but equipment is huge and then if you have equipment for one type of crop it's not necessarily going to work for another type of crop um, so, I mean, to enter a market like that, I would imagine it's pretty hard. Um, so I was curious and, and I don't know, that's, that's going to be my, my own answer to that question. I suppose it's probably hard and it's hard enough that people won't even think about it. 
I, I suspect there's something to that. Yeah, I think people don't appreciate the, to the extent that you know uh, farming is is very much a high tech enterprise at this point. Um, yeah, there's a lot of technology, uh, high startup costs. Um, it's it's yeah, you need more than just to, just a few uh, tools to, uh, to go out and, and get started. Yeah, we're we're still waiting on driverless cars fully, but uh, they've had driverless tractors for a little while. So uh, yeah, it's it's a lot higher tech than you would think. Um, so I want to ask, I want to go back. So this allotment, um, they divvy it up by, well, apparently people that they've known for quite a while and organizations they've known for a while uh, get divvied up by states. Um, and then you said before that you mentioned that about um, the government, that this is of, of the, um, I'm going to just, I'm going to keep using the word subsidy because we can say, we can have like a legal definition and a legal mm -hmm. definition of this is probably not a subsidy. But as far as like, if I was going to do a, uh, data visualization of all of the subsidies in American farming. I would probably put this in here and I would put in as an example that this is a different type of subsidy in which it is price support loans and it's a different mechanism, but it is in essence a subsidy in which they are acting like a cartel, which is quite intense. Um, okay, so what I'm gonna say is, you said that, uh, that this is of all of the different types of ways that the government manipulates markets insofar as crop, crops go. This is the most intense um, because of the way ways they go and manipulate it. I'm going to quote you again, and then I, I'm going to ask if you can expand upon it a little bit. Um, you said, moreover, the federal government the federal government has assisted in in increasing the supply of sugar by spending enormous sums on research, irrigation, and reclamation during a period where production was already far out outstripping consumption. Yeah. Um, it's, it's... So I guess this is perhaps an example of uh, one hand not knowing what the other is doing or in different uh, agencies of the government working to the opposite ends. Um, and this is something you see more broadly with regard to agriculture uh, beyond the direct subsidies that are provided you know, um, to farmers. There are other ways the government gets involved, like, for example, um, promoting research uh, into new and um, more efficient ways of, of, of doing things. Um, and the sugar industry is, is no exception. So you, you do have um, cer certain aspects of government intervention that are aimed towards expanding production when at the same time, another um, object of the government, with, at least with regard to sugar, uh, they're, they're trying to constrain supply. Um, so you, you can't have this ridiculous situation where the government both wants uh, our, our sugar farmers to be more efficient and be able to produce more, but also they don't want them uh, they're also setting limits on how much can be sold. That, that's, uh, that's a tragic irony. Uh, so it's, I didn't realize that that's, that's in essence what's happening. So they want to have, they want to have the most competitive and stable market for sugar, because we've learned terrible lessons, I suppose, of what is the onus of these programs of, of making sure that, you know, bad financial or economic or food supply situations don't happen. So you want them to be competitive and you want to research and develop into it. But also they're in the situation where they're also trying to fix the price so that it's higher while also making sure that everything is more efficient and so yeah, I, I think that's a, I think that's a pretty generous, you know, interpretation of why we have these programs. Yeah, I think that's okay. the ostensible reason or what, you know, the American Sugar Alliance would tell you something along the lines of, well, we're just interested in price stability and, 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 and 
um, ensuring that you know Americans are well supplied and blah blah blah. Um, you know, I, frankly, I think this is all nonsense. Um, you know, we have you know plenty of um, aspects in our lives where there are price price fluctuations, and uh, you know, I think American consumer is 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 not harmed by that. Uh, I, I don't see. An, an obvious market failure here that this is supposed to correct. Uh, we know that in foreign countries that, you know, like Australia, for example, they don't have a sugar program. Uh, there's minimal government protectionism. Actually, I'm not sure there's any. And yet, you know, they're one of the major sugar producers in the world. And, and I don't think that Australian farmer or consumers go without when it comes to sugar. What is the American Sugar Alliance? The American Sugar Alliance is the, um, is the association that represents uh, the sugar industry within the United States. And when I say sugar industry, the uh, producers, the sugar farmers and the producers of, of refined sugar. And um, this is an organization that exists uh, in large part, if not exclusively, to ensure that the US sugar program is maintained and that this arrangement does not go away. And they have been successful in their efforts because for from their perspective, this issue is almost existential. This this is the ball game for them. This is this is hugely important for them. Whereas the average American uh, is not aware the sugar program even exists. So it's it's very asymmetrical. Um, they're out there all the time on Capitol Hill making the case every time the farm bill is discussed. They're making the case for why this is critical and needs to be maintained. And uh, there aren't as many people, I think, speaking up for the American consumer. Yeah, I, I can appreciate that sentiment. Um, I'm going to ask another question. What is the, it's another definition. What is the farm bill? The farm bill is a, a bill that comes up, I can't remember if it's every five years or 10 years, um, I think five years, that is basically um, encapsulates US government agricultural policy. Uh, it, it's where all the subsidies to, to the agricultural sector are to be found. I believe that the farm bill, although it's called the, called the farm bill and has an agricultural focus, I believe that um, the food stamp program, or I think it's the name of it's been called whatever its modern current iteration is, is also folded into the, the farm bill. And the reason for that, or at least maybe my, my cynical take here, but I think it's correct, is that um, if the farm bill was to go before Congress is a, a bill that strictly dealt with agricultural issues. I suspect that a lot of um, members of Congress that represent uh, uh, urban districts or states that are more urbanized with uh, less agricultural interests would take a, a minimal interest in this bill or be opposed to it and say, why are you larding this thing up uh, with with all this, um, all this waste, uh, all, all this taxpayer money? Uh, that's being taken from our pockets and put into your states. Um, but since there's the food stamp element, uh, then there's something for everybody in this bill um, because uh, a lot of people that benefit from those programs uh, or the recipients are to be found in, in more urbanized environments. So, so you know, you, you, you can't guarantee that uh, this is something that Congress will get behind and there's never any danger of the, of the farm bill not passing. Oh, wow. Uh, uh, the depths of what it takes to get uh, things passed in Washington, I suppose. Um, hmm. And 
the farm bill essentially well i didn't i didn't know that part about the it's not the snap program it, is that hey, it is? maybe that's is that was yes yeah maybe that's the I it's know an that, acronym i'm it's sure it's not called i know it's not called food stamps anymore yeah, yeah. i think um, i think you're right it's snap um but any uh sub, supplemental nutrition or something like that yeah um uh i didn't know that it was loaded up into the farm bill um but the farm bill outside of that um is in essence um I'm gonna I'm gonna say this, and you can correct me if not. Uh, the way in which the federal government is market manipulating or adjusting the market in re in relation to um, farm prices, and either ensuring a certain price if there's disaster or um, a dive in the market. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I, I lost you. I, I missed the first part. Can you, can you repeat? I'm sorry. Yeah. Yeah. No. Not a problem. Um, so the farm bill, outside of the SNAP program or the food mm -hmm. stamp program. Um, is in essence, um, and you can correct me if, if this is too harsh of a, a def or you know way of labeling it, um, the way that the federal government is market manipulating or adjusting the market in, in, as it relates to agriculture, um, either in ensuring um, that there is you know for crop loss or crop damage, um, or if the market all of a sudden crashes for certain programs, and also what we're learning here with this price support loan. Yeah, you, I mean, within the farm bill, you will find, I, I believe, your your insurance, pro, your crop insurance programs, um, you know, all manner of, of subsidies, and you know, subsidies take different forms, uh, different forms of assistance to to the agricultural sector uh, from the federal government will be encompassed in, in this farm bill, and that sets policy for, like I said, I, I believe it's like the next, you know, five years. Right. Okay. Um, and this American Sugar Alliance, along with um, this price support program, um, are they defined the relationship and all of that or any, you know, therein it's all defined in how it gets penned every couple of years? And, and, and how what gets, uh, is what defined? It is, in, is the farm bill what's defining the price, price support program and the government's relationship with these other producers as far as allocations and what yes so i believe that you know as i mentioned before uh the government will um pay out some of these price support loans you will get uh you know like i, th I think it's something like you know 18 19 cents for um sugarcane and something like 24 cents for um for beet sugar and those i believe are determined uh in each farm bill um, although I also have to caution that um, those are further broken down. So, you know, beet sugar, um, the amount paid uh, for some states will be more than others to reflect local market conditions. I mean, it doesn't vary that much. I think, you know, I don't think it's more than like a penny, um, but, but you will have um, some refined, that's, you know, the national price, but, you know, the price in any given state um, may vary somewhat from that. Wow. So they're really... Um... Okay, so they're taking a very fine, fine tooth comb to all of this. Yeah, I mean, this really, that, and that, that's what's somewhat remarkable about it. Is, you know, it's something I think I mentioned in the introduction of the paper. I, I said something along the lines of, you know, you could be forgiven for wondering which side won the Cold War because this is so reminiscent of what I imagine that Soviet bureaucrats deep in their, you know, central planning apparatus were, were engaged in, you know, fine tuning exactly how much should be produced by who and for how much um, they'll be compensated. And, you know, it just very much looks like we took a, a page out of their book and, you know, applied it to our own, you know, sugar program. Yeah, it's definitely an emergent quality of hyper uh, control of a market, right? Um, what uh, are the majority of producers large entities 
and are those are they getting consolidated? I don't know. I don't know the ins and outs of of, of the sugar market. Um, I, I do know that <laughs> there are certainly some players in there that are that are, that are uh, very significant and, and have a disproportionate amount of, of influence. Um, perhaps most famous or notorious are the Fan Jewel brothers uh, that run uh, a large sugar empire in the United States. Uh, they're incredibly uh, well connected politically. Um, there's there's Alfie and uh, Pepe Fan Jewel, and I think one's a Republican, one's a Democrat, and I know that one of them was. This just speaks to their, their how how intertwined they are with politics. Uh, one of them was the co-chair of Bill Clinton's. Um, 1992, uh, he's co-chair of their Florida campaign effort, I believe. Um, actually, this is what really, I think, captures the amount of power some of these people have or how connected they are. Um, during the Monica Lewinsky scandal of the 1990s, uh, Monica Lewinsky uh, told one of the investigators that um, their tryst was interrupted by a phone call from some guy named Fanjuli, I believe, and it was one of the Fanjuli brothers, and it was reported that Bill Clinton called the guy back 20 minutes later, and they had it. They spoke for more, over 20 minutes. And this guy, you know, this the sugar, the sugar king, was able to get the president of the United States on the phone for over 20 minutes. You know, the, the leader of the free world. And this, this is remarkable. Um, but it, again, it just speaks to some of the power that these people have, uh, because they are guaranteed a large profit, and then they're able to take some of those profits and funnel them right back in, in, into politics and, and, and trying to promote their friends and making sure that their interests are taken care of. <laughs> what uh... What a uh, perverse and evocative uh, display of how much power this Fanjul individual has that it was in the middle of uh, one of the moments that they had together that they called and then he called him back and spent 20 minutes with him. Yeah. Um, <laughs> wow, that's uh, that's a hilarious, it's, it's, it's sad uh, that that happened, but it, uh, their names and even that as a cherry, uh, it just all sounds like some type of uh, villainous scene in some type of cartoon. You movie. can't make this stuff up. You know, I know, it's, yeah. It's amazing. The truth is always stranger than fiction if you're willing to look for it. Um, what I want to hold on that. So they, they, the, the fact that they donate to Democrats and Republicans um, is that they have, it's as if they have all their bases covered. Are they, um, so is the alliance, the sugar alliance, as a whole, very connected with politics, or are these two an outlier in it? Oh no, I, I, I would strongly suspect that the American Sugar Alliance uh, is, is is very well connected. Um, yeah, and and just to you know back up a bit, you know, I, I mentioned Bill Clinton, but I don't want any of your listeners to be under the impression that yeah, that this is partisan. Um, I think one of the biggest champions of U.S. sugar program you'll find right now is Senator Marco Rubio of Florida, uh, who I believe is very friendly with the, with the Fanjul brothers who are based out of, out of Florida. Um, he has actually <laughs> sought to defend uh, the U.S. sugar program on national defense grounds. Uh, he gave an interview or some remarks a few years ago in which he kind of imaginatively, and I'm paraphrasing here, so I, I won't get his words exactly, Right, but he said something to the effect of, "Well, you know, if we didn't have the sugar program, then some of these sugar fields would lie fallow, and they'd be redeveloped into 
shopping malls, and then we won't have the capacity to feed ourselves. Uh, so it's all about national security. Um, yes, because we so, don't. If we don't protect the cropland, it's going to become strip malls, and we're going to have no place to eat. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> uh, so these are the stories that these people have to tell themselves in order to kind of justify their their support for for the program. That's 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 some great gymnastics there, Marco Rubio. Um, okay, uh, I'm really surprised that he went to. The, I'm I'm actually I'm not that surprised. What am I saying? Um, the emergent qualities of I'm going to keep saying emergent qualities, but the emergent qualities of what politicians will do for their interests, I suppose. Um, and, well, really in trying to hide it in a way. Um, so you, you also said in your, your paper that um, the government is going through all types of market manipulations to increase the price of sugar, yet our price of sugar at the time that you wrote it, which was, was a few years ago, was um, twice that of the international market. Is that still, are we still inflated compared I, I don't know what it is at the moment. Uh, I know that um, in, in past history, I think in, within the past decade or two, I, I think there have actually been moments where the US price was triple that of what you could find on international markets. So if it's not double, I, I would imagine it's, it's close to that. Um, it's certainly, you know, um, there's a significant uh, delta between what Americans are, are paying and what, what you would find on the international market. Um, yeah, yeah. That's interesting. Is there any connection um, between sugar prices and for the price of cane and beet sugar with um, you seeing more and more, uh, or are producers uh, using more and more corn syrup or other types of uh, like alternatives? Yes, uh, you know, I think the most well-known example of this is Coca-Cola up until I believe the early 1980s, uh, Coca-Cola was made with sugar. Uh, but American Coca-Cola, uh, since that time, uh, is they've substituted uh, high fructose corn syrup uh, because it is cheaper than actual sugar. And uh, there are two reasons why it's cheaper. One is that the United States uh, artificially increases the price of sugar. And then through our subsidies, we also artificially decrease the price of corn. Uh, through our, our, our corn subsidies. So Coca-Cola has found it more advantageous to, and, and not only them, other, other um, makers of, of soft drinks uh, use high fructose corn syrup and, and not just soft, soft drinks, you know, other uh, manufacturers out there uh, because, you know, as a direct result uh, of the price of sugar. And we know it's, it's because of uh, the price of sugar because if you go to other countries, for example, Mexico, uh, and you order a Coca-Cola, it will have actual sugar in there. And that's why you find, you can go to you know, my local supermarket at least, uh, you go in there and you can find Mexican Coke, which is kind of crazy. We are the country that invented Coke. You would think that this is like you know, taking sand of the beach or you know, taking coal to Newcastle, um, but we import Mexican Coke because it is different than American Coke because it has actual sugar in it. Um, so yeah, we've come to this place. You know, I don't think that Mexicans import American tequila. <laughs> I'd be surprised if they do. Yeah, we import Mexican um, Coke, and understandably so, because it's arguably, you know, it's, I think it's it's a better product. Yeah, if if anyone ever wondered why uh, Mexican Coke in those in the glass bottles is more delicious, it's not the glass. It's because it's made with actual sugar. Yeah, it's 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 different. It's a different product. Yeah, um, that's and, and I know that you had mentioned also that there is not only is it making so so some 
manufacturers are making the decision like Coca-Cola to switch to a different uh, ingredient, right? Like going to you know, corn syrup. And, and that's a great point. And to underline is that, you know, with some of the subsidies and the farm bill, again, uh, the price of, of corn is lowered, making it once again, advantageous to, uh, to use that as a, as a staple, as an ingredient to make sugar, as opposed to uh, raw cane or beet. Um, you also mentioned that other producers um, that aren't, I suppose that they're, because they're not willing to make the change to a cheaper product are actually moving their manufacturing out of America. Yes. Uh, so th there are a lot of um, industries out there that, that use sugar as an input. Uh, most obviously the candy industry, they use tremendous amounts of sugar for obvious reasons. Uh, and a number, we've seen a number of examples of, of sugar manufacturers picking up and moving to Canada moving to Mexico. And I think invariably, they always cite the high cost of sugar as a primary reason for, for these moves. The, it's, 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 that's a huge um, cost factor. It's a huge expenditure for these companies. So if they can move to Mexico and get cheaper sugar or even, even Canada, and I think the Canada example is particularly instructive because no one's moving to Canada for, for cheap wages. We know that this is a sugar play if you're moving across the border to Canada. Um, so I think that really speaks to the significance and it's, it's a frustration or it's that um, we, there are so many more jobs that are tied to sugar consuming industries than what one finds in sugar production. And yet US, US policy is oriented towards rewarding um, this smaller industry and catering to the interests the interest of this much smaller industry that has fewer jobs uh, associated with it. That's a great point because, you know, even calling back to some of the points you're making earlier is that farming has become like an incredibly uh, equipment and technologically driven enterprise. Um, I mean, obviously, even the, the research is paying off from what they're doing as well as far as crop yields, um, but also the equipment it takes, which means less manpower that is needed, plus also just industrialization at scale and, the, you know, farms are getting bigger, which, which creates, you know, economies of scale to make things a little bit easier. So that means less jobs. But you know, proof is also in the pudding that you have a factory that's making, I don't know, Coca-Cola, or I think a, there was a candy bar factory that you were citing that moved to Canada um, in the paper. Those are actually more jobs. So you are, in essence, to save the, the stability of the industry, or, or like you said, uh, that's at least their rhetoric, um, or to save these small jobs in sugar farming, you're actually sacrificing more jobs in the manufacturing of it and and probably distribution as well it's because it, it's affects more than just you know the uh raw manufacturing of the product sure i, I have to think that uh, you know when a sugar uh when a, when a candy factory closes down i imagine that they also you know ordered well sony's provide the wrappers for that candy and you know so someone else is losing business there these things invariably have knock-on effects and you know second and third order effects so yes um absolutely yeah. And, and also just, I mean, the thing that I always think about when a factory closes is that you don't see factories in, in high residential, you know, cosmopolitan areas. So, you know, you see those in smaller areas, more rural areas or areas that are essentially more dependent on that being there. So when something like this leaves, um, it's less likely to get replaced by something which the, the tip of what the economies are getting affected um, as far as moving production to another place is, is it's quite harmful. Yeah. It's, yeah. It's, yeah. Uh, yes. It's, it's, yeah. It's, it's harmful to, to whatever community it happens to, and it's thoroughly uh, unnecessary and it's, you know, uh, 
a direct product of, of U.S. government policy, which is enormously frustrating. Yeah, I, I can definitely. Yeah, I I feel that after I read uh, read your piece, um, this is you you don't you might not know this. I'm I'm uh, I wouldn't be surprised if you didn't. Does Canada produce most of their sugar, or do they import a lot of their sugar? They import they import most of it. I believe that Canada less than ten percent of of uh, of their sugar needs are met by domestic production. That makes sense. So. Uh, so they are actually moving to an area that is geographically potentially not very far, but is uh, one where they're importing all of the sugar from elsewhere uh, in order to actually meet the needs um, as opposed to getting it from, you know, the domestic market, which that's, that's, I, I was wondering if that was the case. Cause I haven't, I haven't heard much of uh, not that I'm back close to Canadian agriculture, but I haven't, I haven't ever heard of sugar being grown that far north so that's not surprising yeah they're certainly not moving to canada for access to the vast canadian uh, sugarcane fields and uh, I, I don't believe that canada is you know again a, a major producer of sugar it's it's not that canada has um uh i mean canada do, does have better access to sugar that's why they're moving there but it's not because of domestic producers it's because canada unlike the united states doesn't build walls uh trying to keep keep sugar out and restrain sugar supply Right, right. They're not uh, shaking the boats down as they enter the, the harbor. Exactly. Yeah. Um, what? Uh, okay, I'm going to ask this question first. Um, does the um, Does the United States export any sugar? Not that I'm aware of. Uh, I've I've never heard of it. Uh, it'd be it strikes me as extremely unlikely, uh, simply because whoever um, they'd be exporting to, they well the the foreign importer would have to ma at least match what these same uh, producers in the United States get domestically. Um, so it wouldn't make any sense. They have to at least match that inflated U.S. price. And, and there's no reason to do that when you can get much uh, cheaper sugar uh, very readily from other major producers like uh, Australia or, or Brazil. Yeah. And, and the thing with um, global prices, right, is they have to pay that in dollars. Right. So if you're going to import something, you're going to have to pay USD on it. And depending on where you are paying for that from, um, you know, your your currency might not be uh, able to match it quite as much. So it, it further perpetuates keeping that domestic uh, sales. Yeah. Um, OK, so then uh, as far as an international market goes, is this type of program when it comes to this model, like you said, Australia, Australia doesn't have any sugar manipulation or any pr sugar programs. I, I, I keep saying manipulation only because this is, this is quite, uh, I, I want to, I'm just, it's outrageous. Like how they are. Yeah. That, that is the appropriate word to describe it. Yes. Uh, so is any other country, you know, doing any type of um, manipulation either that's similar to this, um, or let's just stick with sugar first and then I'll, I'll ask this again. Um, is there any other international sugar programs that are like this in any sense, or is sugar a commodity in which there is enough of a surplus that it's flowing between international markets quite, quite readily and easily? I mean, there absolutely is an international sugar market and, and, and cross-border flows of, of sugar that take place, you know, significant flows that take place all the time. Uh, is there foreign manipulation of the price of sugar? Absolutely, it, it does take place. Is it to the same extent? It, it, you know, could you say it's like an analog or parallel to the U.S. sugar program? Not that I'm aware of. I have not studied um, foreign sugar programs in depth. 
Uh, I know that the um, the Brazilians uh, do uh, have government intervention in their in their market I, and, and subsidize it. Uh, although I, I strongly suspect, just given Brazil's, um, it, it seems naturally conducive to to growing uh, sugarcane. Uh, that even if you stripped away all those advantages, they would still be a major player regardless. Uh, I, I don't see any reason to think that Brazil's uh, uh, position in the global sugar market is, is exclusively due to government action. Uh, Europe, I know they also engage in, in, in subsidies for beet sugar farmers there. Uh, again, you know, could you say it's on the same level as the United States? I don't know. Um, so, so the, yeah, well, there is no perfectly level playing field outside of the United States. Uh, governments do manipulate these things, and Australia is probably more the exception than the norm. Um, but off the top of my head, I, I'm not aware of any other country that engages in manipulation of its sugar market to the same extent uh, that the United States does. It doesn't mean it doesn't happen, but I'm, I'm not aware of it. Right. Okay. Um... And even still, it's the the level of disparity between the U.S. sugar prices and the world. Uh, it, I mean, sometimes go inflating as much as three times or even two times. Like that's considerable degree. Um, is the price stable? Has it been stable, or is it rising? Uh, I haven't looked lately. I do know that you know historically, uh, you do see gyrations in the market. Um, but that that's true both for the U.S. Uh, domestic price and and internationally. Um, so it's not as though, you know, every year you can bank on, you know, the price of sugar will be say, you know, 25 cents a pound. Uh, it, it does go up and down, although it will never go below that floor, you know, set by the U.S. government effectively. Um, but, you know, this idea that we have a perfectly predictable market and then every year it's going to be roughly the same, that, that has not been borne out. That's not true. Um, you do see price spikes and, and price declines. Is the floor still high? Like, is that, uh price support loan floor is still fairly high? Yeah, I, I want to say that, uh, you know, so again, you know, it's somewhere in the neighborhood of, of 20 cents a pound plus or minus a few cents. Um, you know, I want to say on the international market, you know, you get, uh, again, it, it's commodity, so the prices jump around. But, you know, I think I probably, prices have been as low as, you know, seven cents a pound, uh, may, maybe as high as 15, but, um, it's it's always going to be less than it's it's I think it's always less than than what our price supports are here in the United States. I, I can't recall um, the international price jumping above you know our price the amount of our price support loans. Um, doesn't mean it hasn't happened, uh, but but certainly over an extended period, I, I don't believe that we've seen that. Hmm. That's interesting. So it's it's even the floor is high, but. Um... Okay, so uh, this is going to actually probably going to be the answer. I'm going to ask a question instead of uh, positing it again. Um, what is the United States doing to restrict the entry of more sugar into the market? Are they because they said it's only 15% as allocation? So if you if you're you're allocated overseas to organizations elsewhere, or how does how does that 15% get made up? Yeah, so that that 15% is divided up uh, among U.S. trading partners. And countries that we have free trade agreements with uh, are given, I think, larger amounts than, than other countries. So, for example, like Mexico, you know, has a sizable amount. Um, I think the Dominican Republic, because we have free trade agreement with them. But I, um, yeah, so so that fifteen percent uh, is is divided up, and that is sugar that is allowed to enter 
at uh, the, uh, how I put it, I guess the regular um, tariff rate is like less than one cent per pound, but then that there's a certain, uh, there's a quota. And once that quota is met, anything above that is hit with a, a massive uh, tariff. I want to say something like, you know, 16 cents a pound, which, you know, again, that, that can uh, double, you know, the price of, of sugar. It's, it's prohibitive. Um, it, it effectively, you know, it's, it, it keeps out foreign sugar. Um, so we let in, you know, a relatively small amount at, at a very low tariff, and anything above that is going to hit with a massive tariff. Now, let's say that U.S. Um, sugar demand wildly exceeds what was forecast. The amount of that uh, quota can be expanded to meet U.S. demand. Um, so there are provisions to do that, but uh, you know, we these quota this quota arrangement uh, effectively. Um, uh, sets a ceiling on how much foreign sugar can come into the United States. And it's already been allocated based off of other agreements, uh, which is interesting. So uh, when there is an, inc an increased demand, it I guess it's already set up on who gets an increase in the allocation. Because the reason I'm asking this is because if the U.S. sugar price is as high as it is, I mean, the Mexican peso, you're going to want to get paid you know, in American dollars because of the, the fluctuation in that. Uh, currency. So I would imagine this is a hot commodity. So if this allocation on the international market, I suppose. So is it already divvied up if there is an increase between these trading partners again? Yeah, I, I believe the way it would work is, yeah, yeah. So effectively, each of these countries, I want to say it's in the neighborhood of 40 countries that get a little slice of this quota. Um, they each get a certain percentage. So I imagine that when it's raised, that, um, that it's raised proportionately. To, to each country and you get you get so much. And then I, I believe that there's also arrangements where if a country doesn't use all the quotas, that there's an arrangement, the, there, there's some mechanism for deciding who gets to fill that, that country's quota. Um, so that comes into play as well. And that's interesting. It's it's really meticulously thought out. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Um, yeah. Okay. And I... Uh, if real quick, would you just, I, I, there's been so much talk about tariffs and then all of the talk about tariffs just completely went away uh, from the news cycle because of, of COVID and everything. Um, actually, this is a quick sidebar. I was just, I just uh, had a notification from a, something the other day that it was like one year of, of some of the phase one China deal was like a couple of days ago or something. Um, but anyways, uh, would you mind defining what a tariff is really quick? Uh, a tariff is just essentially a tax placed on imports of, of foreign products. And the tax is paid by who? The tax, <laughs> yeah, that, that's a matter of, of, of some debate. Um, you know, of course, nominally, the, the tax is, um, is, is the, the importer will, will pay it, um, but uh, the person bringing it into the country will, will, pay, will pay the tariff. But in economic terms, who really who really bears the cost? Um, you know, some people argue that oh well, in fact, uh, you know, so Trump made this argument in the China example that China would 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 bear the cost of the tariff uh, because they they would they would eat the cost because they they'd want to keep their prices uh, stable and they wouldn't want to raise their prices. Um, uh, so, so essentially, they they'd eat the cost rather than pass along the cost to to Americans because they wouldn't want to just you know they lower their 
uh, prices to offset the, the tariff. You know, in reality, um, we, we have not seen that. I believe the economists that have looked at this have overwhelmingly concluded that uh, the vast majority, if not all, of the tariff is effectively passed on to U.S. consumers and that Americans are the ones that bear the cost of, of these tariffs. Yeah. Uh, and, and in this case, in sugar, is the tariff high enough to be a disincentive to continue importing, I suppose, because of the allocations? I, I guess that this is already in such meticulous detail, there's not even really just kind of like the how, how do you get back into the market? Um, there's not really much of an incentive to try to even sell it with the tariff, I suppose. Right. Yeah. Because the, the, again, the, the tariff is so massive, you know, you, you effectively, you know, um, you can, depending on where the price of sugar is, but oftentimes you can effectively double the price of, of sugar uh, coming in. So it's just, it's, it, it makes it prohibitive to, to bring in this sugar because um, it's just so much more costly um, than, than, than American sugar. Um, yeah, so you theoretically you could do it, but no, practically speaking, it doesn't make any economic sense to pay that tariff. It's 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 prohibitive. Yeah, it's like a uh, economic firewall in a way. Yeah, right. Yeah. Like yeah. You, it's it's too the cost is too high. And that that's the purpose of it. That that mm -hmm. is the purpose of the, the tariff. Uh, it wouldn't be doing its job if people were uh, gladly paying the tariff and and, and importing uh, foreign sugar. Uh, it's designed to be prohibitive. Right, which is a good point um what uh what would you do to stop it or to change it or to alter this scenario is there anything that you would do well there have been efforts legislative efforts in the past to to get rid of this program um uh and i think back in i believe back in the 90s uh the house of representatives came within like seven votes of repealing this program um and, and I think in more more recent years, the the efforts have been more modest. Uh, they've tried to reduce the amount of uh, these 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 uh, price support loans, the the amount that gets paid out. I suspect it's maybe you know just trying to wean people off of the program rather than eliminating it wholesale. Um, I, I I think there have been efforts. I want to say I'd, I'd have to double check, but to also expand the amount of sugar that can be imported. Uh, into the country, expand that tariff rate quota so the you know the quota is is, is larger. Um, you know me, I, you know, I think it's straightforward. You just repeal the program that doesn't deserve to exist. It doesn't meet any obvious need. Um, I, I I don't see any point in retaining any part of it. And by the way, one aspect of of the program that I haven't mentioned that's kind of the cherry on top in some ways is that. Let's say you came to a situation where despite all this manipulation and trying to restrain a supply, you still didn't hit those price minimums that we talked about where uh, you know you didn't reach the 20 to 25 cents per pound and, and, and uh, sugar processors were saying, no, fine, keep the collateral, I don't care. This is a better deal than what I'm gonna get on the open market for it. There's something else out there called the feedstock flexibility program where the government has the ability to go out and buy up sugar to pull sugar out of the market to try to again restrict that supply. Um, and then they take that sugar and I believe they convert it um, into ethanol. I knew uh, it. So yeah, it, it's it's just, you know, it's subsidy on top of subsidy. So you know, they take that and get 
give that to the ethanol guys. So then you have ethanol people invested, you know, in the future of this program to some extent. I think that that's doesn't happen very often. I know that back in 2013, uh, that did happen where the government spent a few hundred million dollars to buy up sugar because they, they were in danger of not hitting those, those price targets they had set. And I think it's, it's actually written into law that any sugar purchased by the US government cannot be used for human consumption. Like it has to find some alternative <laughs> use. Great. Yeah. Okay. So we can't bake with it, uh, but we can make it into ethanol because that's right. a great use of energy. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah uh, ethanol. I, I, I'm not surprised ethanol came up. That just seems the farm, the, the whole program of ethanol to me is, is, is kind of a little outrageous, um, but that's for a whole nother thing. Uh, so the government, but isn't that kind of uh, cutting its nose to spite its face in a way? Because if the government would just allow the price to go down and then they would start paying out some of these subs, you know, these, these loans, wouldn't eventually the market write itself and go back to a, a, an inflated price if they were paying out enough of these loans or, or, you know, maybe just a season or is the thought that if we do this for a season, it's going to kind of start being a rule, you know, uh, a rock that just keeps rolling or is it just neuroticism from the entity of the government? Yeah, I, I think that the you know the government they they don't they don't want to have sugar on their hands. That would be embarrassing uh, for them. They have to figure out what to do with it. It puts them in an uncomfortable position. Uh, so you know they I, I think their their interest is just maintain the status quo and and uh, making sure that uh, every year that price is high enough where they don't have to deal with with these loans with dealing with that collateral and. They just they just want to make the loans, um, get paid back, and make sure those farmers uh, ha have the money rolling in, uh, like the program was designed. And I, I don't think that their thinking goes terribly beyond that. Yeah, uh, just wanting to keep it going, I suppose. Right? It's it's been here, and now it's creating a life of its own. In fairness, they're just you know they're just doing what they're told to do, and 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 they're just carrying out the laws it's written. So um, you know that's. It's, it's it's their job yeah uh there's a um I, I don't actually know i think it might not actually be einstein but i think it's appropriate to him of essentially that you know any uh intelligent individual can make something more smart complex and and uh intricate but it takes a stroke of genius to go the other way um and why i'm bringing it up is because i mean this is a very interesting all of the ways i mean like if i was playing a game of risk and this is all of the different intricacies of playing the game of, you know, you have to, well, you have to contend with how much is allocated internationally, how much is allocated domestically, how much is allocated to each state and, you know, manipulating prices to understand that growing in Hawaii is, you know, more expensive or cheaper than it is to growing and selling and, you know, based off market conditions. Like they're really, they're really thinking everything through. So, I mean, it is, it is a well-crafted ship uh, in the sense of what they're doing. Um, but the actual they're, they're they're playing the game they forgot what they're doing right like it's the level of intricacy that they're building this house is completely out of out of control i would say uh yeah i would just say it's 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 uh it's like a rube goldberg machine i mean it's just unnecessary it's like to what end uh, what what problem are we right. solving here i you know that's i guess what gets me the most is this very complicated exercise in service of what yeah um sugar right uh, yeah. which is i mean it's i mean to answer my own question it's in service of 
giving money to sugar farmers and taking it out of you know the pockets of American consumers and making sure that these guys get a certain uh, income. Um, so you know that's great for a very tiny sliver of Americans out there, and it's very bad for the rest of us. Yeah, I would be I would be interested to see what the breakdown and consolidation of of sugar farmers is. Because I know across the board, the consolidation of farming is is yeah. incredible. It's actually, and especially the past uh, fifteen years, it's it's incredible. It's it, majority of farms is increasingly owned by less and less, or you know, entities. I'll say entities because some of them are individuals. I think just the other day, Bill Gates became the most. Uh, he owns the most amount of farmland, and I think it's because he brought some trunk in Nebraska. Um, but you know, he, him aside, like it is an increasingly smaller and smaller number of entities that are owning more and more and more of the farming. Uh, and that's been the case for a while now. So I, I would be curious how much this is really, you know, in the interest of farmers than it is um, other corporate entities by just a different means. Um, and the reason I, I keep highlighting sugar is because I'm one, I'm trying to be a little cheeky with a, a, like a, a, a rather obscene uh, situation, um, but also because like, you know, it, it is a staple, right? Like sugar is a staple in, most you know diets and food or sure we can say that and we can say you know as far as like the interest of taxpayers and i think the better way of looking at it really is the interest of citizens um sure we like our sugary stuff all right cool yeah that i can understand that as an interest um but i'm a i'm a fairly big person who is concerned about the environment and the incredible uh conundrum set of conundrums that we have coming from living in the anthropocene um but I would still make a strong case that we need to be watching to make sure that oil doesn't go too out of, out of whack. And the reason I would say that is because it is incredibly in the interest of every single one of the, our citizens to say like, well, you have oil because you need to have a, a means to get to work, right? You need a means to go everywhere. Our economy is still run on fossil fuels. And even though I wish it wasn't because of the detrimental effects of the environment that are happening from it, um, I still would make the case that we need to make sure that oil doesn't get out of control. Now, sugar... Uh, is not something that I would think of considering to go through such lengths at these. Now, the lengths they're going to, I think, are rather too intricate. And I think your call to um, communist regimes, I think, is very adequate. Because if you, if you really look at the way that they would do market manipulations for prices, which ultimately led to a big part of their bloat that imploded them, is that they would have to obsess over everything because everything was controlled and fixed. Um, which ends up becoming a means to your own end. Um, so to have it for sugar, it just seems it, it seems completely out of the interests of what you should even be doing because you know the the I would say the role of government is to you know create the means for a safe and secure and active and happy citizenry, right? And I don't I don't understand the lengths and ends at which they're doing this is really that great um, because it's also creating these other effects like you know, using more corn syrup and things like that, which necessarily isn't it sure also for taste, but also for you know consumption. It's not a one-to-one -one with sugar. Well, they are making a very small set of, of wealthy people very happy uh, with this. So like I mentioned before, the FanDuel brothers, you know, you made the observation about the consolidation of the agricultural industry and farms. Uh, I, I think you're dead on there from, from my understanding. Uh, I think I suspect that, you know, a lot of the farm lobbyists out there like to trot out the image of the family farmer out there struggling uh, to make a go of it when the reality is that, uh, you know, the vast majority of agriculture in this country is not the family farmer in terms of production. It's coming from, you know, a relatively small number 
of, of corporate entities. And it's these entities that also disproportionately benefit from our various subsidy programs, including you know, the sugar subsidy program we're discussing today. Yeah, and I think, you know, you can feel free to, to riff and muse with this on me or not, but I think a lot of that has to do with, you know, people who are making large investments like fixed returns, fixed and secure returns. And if you are buying a large set of farms, you know you're at least going to get insurance on those farms should anything go wrong. And having more increased government programs like this just in a way encourages that type of emergent behavior. Yeah, yeah, I, I agree. Um, okay, so if you had a magic wand, you would just get rid of this program and try to stabilize the market to not so it's not a huge crash. Um, I'm, I'm assuming you can correct me if I'm wrong. I, I mean, I think that you know, realistically, yes. You know, I, you know, for me, I see no redeeming redeeming features of this program. I would abolish it. Uh, you know, if we want to enter the more you know politically realistic realm. Uh, Anytime you have someone um, on the government gravy train, uh, realistically, you're gonna have to buy them off um, somehow. You're gonna have to compensate them in, in some way. Uh, for they're not quite easily let go of this program. Um, and you know, fine. Uh, you know, we could effectively buy out uh, these guys through various measures, either you know, a huge lump, some payment, tax credits, some something like that. Uh, because in the long term, whatever we pay them off with will uh, will end up saving us money. Because this is just we're just throwing money down the drain year after year after year with this program. Yeah, and we're we're continually. I mean, we're losing tax revenue off of uh, factories that are moving and 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 the jobs and the the payment and, and all that. There's so much that's being lost by this program. It's not. It's, it's, it's kind of outrageous. It's, it's, it's yeah. It's the jobs. You know, it goes beyond that. Uh, it's it's again. <laughs> we can't even have uh, real uh, real soda. You know, um, <laughs> you know real yeah. Coca Cola. But you know, it, go, it goes further. Uh, for example, when the United States goes to negotiate a free trade agreement, um, and that country happens to be a sugar exporter, well, the United States is very reluctant to give any ground there because it you know may. Um, uh, upset the the apple cart here with regard to the sugar program. So, for example, when the United States negotiated a, a free trade agreement with Australia back in I want to say 2004, something like that, um, there were a few items the Australians wanted, uh, or that we wanted rather, that Australia would not concede on because we wouldn't give any ground on sugar. So they're American, you know, exporters of of, of certain products, and they wanted expanded access to the uh, Australian market. I believe like wheat farmers and I think uh, like TV programs, something audiovisual, uh, you know, they wanted to expand access. The Australian said, no, you won't give us sugar. So we're not giving you that. So these are other people that, you know, get hit, uh, um, you know, kind of collateral damage from, from, from the U.S. sugar program. I think the United States loses its moral authority. You know, we like to Tell people about the virtues of, of free trade and capitalism and things like that and, and free enterprise and we're not practicing it ourselves uh, in, in this example and others. Um, and, and then I think we also need to take a moment to reflect on the people, the sugar farmers in other countries that are hurt by this. If, if not for the US sugar program, they would have expanded access to the US market. Their fortunes would be improved. And, you know, if people in, in other countries see that their station in life is improved, um, 
then they're going to want to consume more U.S. products, and you know, they're going to have more disposable income to buy uh, from Americans. So I, we just lose. There are some very obvious ways in which we lose. You know, the, again, the candy factory, and not just candy. You know, other industries, bakers, everyone that uses sugar, uh, their competitiveness is harmed. Uh, but there are other, I think, less seen and less less obvious ways uh, in which Americans are harmed. Um, uh, uh, filtering down all the way to, you know, just when you go to order a Coke and you get something uh, that, that is less than, than, than ideal that uh, people in other countries can enjoy. Yeah, definitely. Um, did it come up at all in the Trans-Pacific Par- Partnership? Do you know the TP? That's a, that's a good question. I don't know uh, the answer to that. I would be, I'm, I'm trying to think of the participants in that. Um, uh, Australia is a participant and, and they have a sugar industry. Um, I'm guessing that with regard to that, we probably just kept the terms similar to whatever was in the US Australia FTA. Um, I'd, be, I'd, be, I'd be surprised if it didn't, but I'm also not aware of any big changes uh, or there would have been a significant impact from the TPV on the US sugar program. Mm-hmm. That's interesting. Yeah, because I was wondering, I, I'm not sure if you would even know, but if what... Uh the uh, rising China or the growing Chinese uh, economy is having on, on sugar. Cause I know their, their sugar consumption has gone up quite a bit. So that's why I was asking. Cause I was curious to see if that would move right. the apple cart on this at all. I, I, yeah, I, I, I don't know. Um, of, of course, China was outside the TPP, although, you know, they made some noise about possibly joining. I think that's unlikely. I thought uh, it would might've been an incentive. They would might've yeah. been able to pressure the U S market more because China wasn't in it. Right. Cause it was really just like a bastion of, of trying to isolate China more, I suppose. And create a yeah. I mean, that, that was one of the, you know, uh, cited reasons for, for why TPP should pass is a geopolitical um, mechanism uh, to isolate China and also encourage China to have them on the outside looking in and, and incentivize them to become uh, more um, free market or open their market. It's more, um, yeah, and, and then also just uh, try to, uh, I think, um, orient other countries, uh, try to encourage them to orient their own economies away from China, and at least in relative terms, more towards the United States. So that, yeah, those are, I think, some of the reasons why TPP was, was, was being pushed at the time. Which is almost interesting in relation, I'm only, this is an organic thought, it's interesting in relation to this, because in a lot of the ways the U.S. wants China to play more fairly are ways of not manipulating the market in ways of what we're talking about here. And you know, rather- absolutely, and that speaks to you know what I said earlier about you know our moral authority is undermined. We you know like to lecture other countries, and and I think China is one of our favorite targets, and say you need to become more free market. Well, we need to practice what we preach, uh, as well, and and this, um, you know. Arguably, uh, it betrays a lack of confidence in our own system when we shy away from um, the, the market actually functioning and we come up with ridiculous explanations like, oh, well, it would imperil our national security and our food security and maybe there wouldn't be enough to eat and there, the supply wouldn't be assured. Well, if you say all those things, then you're really saying you don't believe in free enterprise, uh, which is one of the things that this country, you know, we, we I think we a lot of people claim that you know, this country stands for. Um, so yeah, it's, it's, it's a bit rich when we lecture other countries on this, yet we engage in, in practices such as the U.S. sugar program. Yeah, and, and once again, for, for sugar, when there isn't, you know, at, like there is surplus more years than there isn't, uh, and it's not a uh, dire need. So, I mean, I, I understand the government having some type of insurance policy and not having some type of catastrophe 
Um, but it doesn't seem like there's one coming to the extent of this. And that's even why I brought up the oil example, because if there was some type of catastrophe, I can understand going to great means, you know, if there's barbarians at the gates and it calls for it. Um, but I don't think that that's happening when it comes to sugar. Well, um, another thing, from just from a purely national security perspective or, or from a food security perspective, you know, the best ways of, of, of assuring uh, your access to something is, is a diversity of, of supply. And, you know, by being able to tap the international market, by being able to tap Brazil or Australia's, you know, various uh, sources of, of foreign sugar, you know, arguably that would uh, promote greater stability uh, than if you're, you know, uh, dependent on a relatively narrower set of actors uh, domestically. Right, right, right. More competition, uh, more stability, as opposed to artificially creating these <laughs> allocations or, or manipulations of all of it, because then it, it actually just, because, uh, you know, I mean, the, the reason I even brought up the international market too is because, you know, those soft relationships matter, right? So like if there is all of a sudden a need, being able to have the means of saying, hey, you know, producers in Brazil, we're going to need more, um, where if they have no expectation of doing that, it's, it, it, it actually creates its a mechanism for its own destruction, right? Like, and, and sugar is obviously something that I, I wouldn't be too concerned about, but um, this is an analog for any other type of program um, shows that if you're, not, if you're not being smart about and your intention of what you're trying to do, um, you can lead to rather strange ends that end up just being exactly the, the opposite of what it should be. In this case, you know, inflated prices um, going to great means to make sure that price is inflated, you know, from buying it um, and and producing it at a loss uh, for ethanol or whatever means, and making sure it's not for human consumption, uh, you know, shutting people out uh, from the international market, and then also having that affect other things with the trade agreements, because these these industries and those agreements are are kind of like uh, trading pieces, I suppose, to make sure that the deal overall gets done. Yeah, man. Well, the crazy thing about the, this this program is, you know, this is not an accidental. By, the inflated prices are not an accidental byproduct. This is the sugar program working as it was intended to work. You know, this is by design. It's 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 madness. I think. So, what do you think is the likely? So the uh, the I, I appreciate you you playing along and saying you know what you would like with you know being all things equal. You know, some type of compensation and a recognition of hey, we're going to be you know putting the market back in a different place of them where we found it. Um, if we were to end it in, in such a way um, and recognizing that um, and then, you know, easing it in at some, in some way uh, to a more open market. Um, but what do you think is most likely? Do you think that this, this program is going to continue on for this foreseeable future or what do you think is most likely to happen? And feel free to take this or you don't have to, to take the bait, but do you see um, any type of increase, increasing, uh, government uh, intervention in the agricultural space in general? Um, I, unfortunately, it doesn't seem um, smart proposition to bet in favor of improved government policy uh, lately. Um, I don't see a great appetite for free market oriented reforms coming out of either major party. Um, I, I suppose what's heartening is every time the farm bill does come up, you do see a non-trivial number of members of Congress that do want to kill the sugar program. Um, you know, I think you can usually bank on at least 100 members of the House, for example, that will sign on to something like this to, 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 to at least, if not repeal the sugar program, at least pare it back, um, shrink it 
somehow make it less onerous. Uh, unfortunately, you need 218 members to, to get a majority and they haven't come all that close lately to getting getting that done, you know, back in 2018. Um, part of the problem here is again, if, if the sugar program was a standalone bill and had that had to be renewed periodically, I, I'm fairly confident. I think there's an excellent chance it would actually fail, but because it's wrapped in with the larger politics of the farm bill and, and broader agricultural policy, that, that, um, that makes things a lot more difficult because there's also, you know, log rolling and, hey, uh, I'll vote for your program if you vote for mine. So the majority of people out there probably aren't all that directly invested in sugar, but the people that care about sugar will tell them, hey, uh, you know, if you just keep the sugar program in place, this other thing you want, I'll back you up on that. And that's a, that's a dynamic you see a lot. So, um, you know, it doesn't pay to be an optimist with these things, unfortunately. Um, so I'm just hopeful that, um, you know, eventually people will conclude that enough is enough and, and as more Americans become knowledgeable and educated about this, again, uh, one of the biggest obstacles we face is the fact that most Americans don't even know about it. Well, you, you can't defeat something if, if people uh, first, first aren't made aware of it and lack that knowledge. So look, I'll be forever hopeful that something like this will happen, but I, I, I'm, not, I'm not banking on this changing anytime soon. Um, and, so really, and really what's holding it back is the political will to take it on head on in a separate bill that either repeals the section of the farm bill as it relates to the sugar program, like as a line item or someone who's during the farm bill negotiation is willing to whip up enough votes and political expend the political capital to do this while going against uh, the uh, Van Jewel brothers to, uh, and all of their, their donations and contributions to make that happen. Yeah. Um, you know, the, it's, it's, it's a tough go of it. Uh, like I said, back in the mid nineties, they got within a few votes of, of getting this thing repealed, uh, I believe in, in the house. Um, and, and there are people out there that, that realize what a bad program this is and, and do realize how urgently that some kind of reform or change is needed. Um, but we need them to be a majority and we're not quite there yet. Yeah. Yeah. And it's enough of a, uh, I don't want to say obscurity because this, the obscurity to me of this is the program itself, but I guess the, uh, the knowledge and awareness in what is happening with this type, with, with this cartel, the United States is a sugar cartel. The United States has a sugar cartel. Um, and there's not enough of a political will to go up against that. Um, especially when you have Marco Rubio, you know, explaining so eloquently that if we were to touch this, that we're going to have be overrun with strip malls. Yeah, well, it, it, what I think about is the fact that Marco Rubio thinks he can say something like this and not get automatically laughed out of the room. Um, yeah, that, you know, that it's. It, I, I wish that we had a political environment where politicians said something like that. They 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 would be, just be shamed out of that holding that position. Um, they wouldn't be you know held to account. But Marco Rubio feels like he can say things like this, yeah. and that that's more concerning to me. I, um, anyway, that's a great comment, though. No, that's a great comment. Because what I was just thinking right now when you were when we were talking about this is uh, the next time a politician says something that's outrageous, I'm going to, I may even build a bot that finds this because the next time it happens, I'm going to look and see what are you hiding? Because um, clearly there's something here that you're making. This isn't just a, 
you know, a ridiculous remark that you're making because you've had too much coffee or you're, you're a little tired. No, no, no. This is you're hiding something. There. Yeah. Yeah. There's a story there. Um, and, and I think it is, that's a great point though, is that is definitely reflective of the time that we're in that Marco Rubio can say something so asinine as, you know, Florida is going to be overrun with strip malls or just the country. Yeah. Or the country. Yeah. yeah, yeah. We're going to be late. In, we're already overrun with strip malls, but I don't think they're going to pave everything because of, you know, not having enough for sugar plant, you know, sugar plantations. Um, yeah. And, and very well, it might get, you know, changed into a different crop, but uh, yeah, that's outrageous. Um, okay. So it, it, do, you know, you don't think there's political will. And I think that that explains it um, because it's wrapped up in the farm bill that's, it's been crafted to make sure these programs continue. Um, do you, do you foresee that this type of government? um, Maybe not this one because this is like you know pretty crazy. The United States is running a sugar cartel. Um, do you see this type of governments? How can I put this? Uh, this this type of government intervention. Do you see this type going away or changing um, or kind of maintaining the status quo for the for the foreseeable future? Um, and yeah, if you unfortunately, don't... I don't. I don't really see a deviation from the status. quo in our in our immediate future I just don't I don't see the leadership out there um, yeah you know something I think I mentioned in my papers that we had President Trump come along uh, famously vowing to to drain the swamp uh, and I saw no evidence of that um, arguably the opposite uh, and I just don't see I don't see an appetite for for this 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 kind of thing um, I, I think that you know in, in the coming years, we're going to see more of an appetite for government expansion. Unfortunately, I just don't see this kind of reform um, being on the agenda. Uh, you're going to make a lot of enemies, and, and unfortunately, I think a lot of people see the perceived payoff is is not worth the, the cost that it would take to get something like this done. Yeah, that makes sense. It's not uh, worth the expense of the political capital. Um, I think Trump saying that he was going to drain the swap is almost as asinine as Marco Rubio saying that if we're going to be overrun with strip malls, because uh, it just wasn't credible. <laughs> no, no, no. Uh, especially when you see who he's putting in into positions, um, it, it was anything other than just you know a hodgepodge of status quo. Um, yeah, that's that's unfortunate. Um, what? Uh, yeah, I mean that's a really great overview. I. I I think that's most of, of what I wanted to really highlight. Uh, yeah, is there anything else you would want to add as far as um, the sugar the sugar cartel as as a, a whole uh, plans for the future or just even remarks on on you know free market as a as a means of uh, an economic end? Yeah, I, I would just say that uh, I, I do think the free market is a is plainly superior to you know. These kind of government manipulations in the market. Um, if you, if you don't like the free market, well, you should see what the unfree market looks like. And this is a, a classic example right there. Um, it's it's all about um, people manipulating the levers of power, as we see here with the sugar example, and and making sure that uh, they're taken care of. And they they do this and they operate at the expense of of everyday Americans. Um, so. I think we should we should trust the market and we should be more suspicious of of government manipulations such as the U.S. sugar program. Yeah, yeah, and and what I would what I would say to that is you know the that adage of you know the road to perdition or the road to hell is paved with with good intentions. Um, 
any type of government program is going to have a mass set of unintended consequences. And if you're not incredibly deliberate and simple with what you're doing, right? Uh, because if you try to make something more and more and more complex, it, or even in this case, where it's something as simple as we're going to give you, you know, loans back and, back, back and fix the price to this level, you have to be incredibly intentional about what you're doing and why you're doing it. Um, because the, what's going to emerge out of that and the pressures within the system and the culture that it exists in. And I would say the culture being, you know, this, this game of campaign contributions for political capital and political will, um, you know, and, and that definitely factors into our political culture. Um, if you're not incredibly careful about what, why, and the means in which you're doing it, um, you can end up with this incredible mess that would be very hard and politically expensive to get out of um, and is affecting, you know, multi, not, sure, we can talk about the factories and all that, but it is affecting numerous other industries and the situations like the, the free trade agreements. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. I, plainly, uh, intentions and outcomes are very different things. And, uh, you know, the, different market actors attempting to manipulate the government to serve their own ends is a tale as old as time. And I don't see any chance of that ending. So uh, we should, the default assumption should always be that any government program like this will be manipulated by people from the outside. And that uh, the, you know, the ostensible purpose of the program and what it ends up achieving and, and, and the outcomes are, are, I think very often gonna be at odds. Yeah, um, it seems safe, right? So like, I, I think, the truth often lies in paradox, right? So it seems safe to say that the government um, as an entity, right? Because when we say the government, we really mean a lot here, right? We mean the legislators that are crafting the bill that then has to get executed and then gets fed back into the industry that influences it all. And, and there's even layers of the cake I'm not mentioning here. Um, but it seems safe to have the government as an apparatus um, being the top of the hill and saying, you know, what, setting the rules for the game it's, and, and executing the game and making sure it's played fairly to the level of detail that this is happening. It feels safe in a way to do that. But really what you do is by creating this pyramid king of the hill structure in which um, the government in both, you know, the legislating of what's going to happen and then the execution of it um, holds all the cards. What that actually means is to a smart actor, they just have to, they have to go to that one end and then they're able to manipulate their interests a lot more easily um, than they would if it wasn't completely fixed from the American government as a sugar cartel in this example. Yeah, um, yeah, I, I believe the royal government, you know, is is to uh, you know, yeah set the rules of the road, guard against things like like fraud, uh, people from harming one another, and they ensure property rights and that contracts are respected. Uh, things like that, but uh, manipulating market outcomes, no. Uh, I draw the line uh, there, actually perhaps even well before there. Hmm. As a, a question, do you think that there are instances where the government should intervene? Sure, so I, I think that, uh, yes, there, there plainly is a role uh, for government, uh, and I think, I think some limited government interventions uh, to correct market failures or, you know, tragedy of the commons type situations um, or areas where 
it's not apparent that a market would exist to, to meet a certain need. For example, you know, classic case being, you know, national defense. I, I, I'm sure there are people out there that can make an argument about how private actors could fill that space. Personally, I'm not sure I, I see it. Um, uh, so I, I, you know, I, I just think that government should provide those services um, that the, the private market that, that are needed and the private market um, won't provide. But we should also we need to be suspicious of, I think a lot of people will make assumptions or uh, claim to have knowledge uh, about what the private market is or is not capable of doing. I think we might be surprised at just um, how great the scope is for private uh, activity and non-government solutions. Uh, I actually saw a blog post from one of my Cato colleagues uh, earlier today. We talked about Wikipedia, and you almost think it's it's crazy that these this nonprofit uh, private actors get together and create this online encyclopedia. And you, you might think. Um, uh, that this would be a natural space for government to act because you know what market would exist or what what actors would spring up to fill this need you know absent government and yet yet private actors have so um, it's just something I think you know worth keeping in mind when we try to determine what is or is outside the scope of appropriate government activity because we we might be surprised at what the uh, private actors are capable of doing. Yeah. Would you think um, we're just we're just riffing at this point? That's okay with me if it's okay with you. Yeah. Uh, would you say that it's it's helpful for the government to incentivize either a creation of a market um, or a I'm going to use the word regulation of a market if there are effects that aren't being priced in? Uh, well, you know, if, you know, just per. Speaking for myself, uh, so you may be familiar with the, the concept of Guvian tax, uh, which is basically a tax that is supposed to account for externalities that are imposed by private actors. Uh, you know, a classic case being pollution. And um, if you emit so much, it's like we tax a product at a certain amount to, to, to um, build into that product, the pollution that comes along, the environmental effects that come along with it. And I think there's definitely something to that um, because even when we think that there's a role for government, you know, again, another class example being environmental degradation or pollution um, of the, the air we all breathe and regulating that. Well, you know, there are different ways of going about ameliorating those effects. One is, you know, you pass a law saying you can't do X. Another, I think, but I think there are more imaginative uh, government solutions out there. For example, this kind of tax, like you can do X, but we're also gonna tax you on top of that, which acts as a natural deterrent. And you can manipulate that tax up and down depending on how great the need is for, for, for restraining that type of activity. Or you, if I recall, um, uh, there was all the controversy about cap and trade with regard to carbon emissions, mm -hmm. which is you know the creation of, of, of a market you know, to, to deal with, uh, uh, to meet environmental concern, to address environmental concern. So, um, yeah, I don't know if I've quite answered your question, but you know, there are certainly things like that that I'm obviously, I'm close to make a blanket statement, say they're all good or all bad, but I'm, I'm certainly open to them. Uh, and depending on the circumstances, I could see myself endorsing some of those types of measures. Yeah, I was curious, because um, I think most of people's initial reaction when they think free market is they think truly free. Um, but it's essentially, it, it, it's, would you say that, um, free market or encouraging a free market is to try to encourage 
self-correction with minimal government intervention? Yes, I mean, I'm a believer that markets do correct. Um, and and I, I think that, no, another thing I think we have to keep in mind is that when government acts, um, we think, well, it fixes that problem, but there are a lot of unintended consequences that go along with that action itself that in turn cr create uh, as many or more problems than that one action you know, solved or, or resolved or, or addressed, whatever. Um, so I'm, I'm just always suspicious of, of government action because um, a lot of times those consequences don't become apparent until after the fact. Um, so these, these, you know, and, and again, I, I do think that uh, markets, you know, generally speaking, are, are pretty good at, you know, just the, the price mechanism uh, is, is pretty good at, at, at occur encouraging and discouraging certain uh, activities. You know, you mentioned oil before and, and the need, you know, that's a critical final resource that we need. Um, but I also think the markets are pretty good at dealing with that when the price of oil is very high. That means that people uh, discourages people from taking long road trips and, and it encourages uh, um, people saving and conserving. Uh, and, uh, and, and also on the other side of the coin, it encourages uh, production and, and discovery and uh, uh, creating new uh, making things more efficient and more efficient engines and, and better ways of uh, exploiting um, uh, our oil resources, uh, the fracking revolution. And, and you know, you probably already know this, but you know, oil fields, my understanding is traditionally, you know, only a small, uh, relatively small amount of oil was sucked out of these oil fields. And a lot of it was just deemed uneconomic to retrieve and was left in the ground. And the new technologies come along and, and enable us to, to get um, more of that oil. So, you know, I think the markets um, are, are pretty good at solving um, a lot of problems that we face. I'm gonna give you a definition and see, uh, let's see how much you like it. Would you say that a definition of a market is, in, is human behavior as it, as it relates to prices of commodities? I, I would say it, it my, my inclination is that it, it, it goes beyond that. Yeah, prices, I mean, prices of, of anything, really, you know, services, you know, that like a haircut, I mean, anything. Um, it's, it's, you know, how humans, you know, interact, um, you know, when, when, when supply so, and demand, you know, collide and, and, and uh, human reactions to that. I'd, I'd have to, I'd have to give that some more thought to how exactly I would, you know, define a, a market um, but that's okay but it, it relates to as a, a large apparatus human behavior and what the costs that they will trade for goods and services yeah yeah sure. I mean, yeah, okay. yeah exchange exchange you know it's a, it's a you know free exchange of goods among among individuals goods and services among individuals um or yeah. or yeah, or the like effects of of it there into and how they all kind of connect together because I guess you would have to also talk about connecting um yeah. Uh, would you, so in essence, you're, one of the ideas that you're bringing up is um, you could tax things as a different means of government intervention and have to create dis disincentives um, or really, I mean, I think disincentives are just a different form of incentives, right? You're incentivizing people not yeah. to behavior yeah. as opposed to doing it. Um, it's similar to the way that they're manipulating with the sugar that we were talking earlier, right? Like the tariff is so high, I'm not going to do it. Um, where, it, you know, if you create something, a tax for 
you know, a, a certain chemical, let's just say, or something else that's, that's so high, it's, there's no incentive to use it unless there's all of a sudden a dire need for something where it outweighs it. Um, then that, and that makes sense to me. It's, it's, yeah, I, I think one of the concerns, the concerns I have with our current political culture um, is I think that a lot of the, the, the virtue or the, the benefit of looking at things from a multiple different angles, especially I, I bring up the climate a lot because I think that this is just such an immense problem that we're facing um, that's touching everything that we consume and do um, that's going to be affected by it in some way um, that I, you know, I wish there was more thought being put into programs of either taxing the like cap and trade, but that does, that seems more or less, I mean, maybe with the new administration and Congress, it'll happen, but um, it seems to be that we are moving more towards government intervention um, in means of programs and less towards in means of uh, market forces, I suppose. Yeah, I, I think that the government is probably better at identifying um, bad things than good things. For example, you, you, mm -hmm. you mentioned uh, carbon uh, climate change. Um, you know, we can agree that that's bad, uh, it, but I think we're probably better served trying to figure out ways of punishing um, bad behavior than encouraging good behavior because we don't know we don't know what the solution is we can we go that thing is bad and, and people have different ideas like you know we should use offshore wind or you know any number of, of alternative energy sources i don't know which one of those is the best um but you know what i think we should do is we should say well we know this activity is bad and tax that and then we'll see the market how the market responds to that and figures mm -hmm. out what the best alternative is so i, I you know i think our energies um are better spent devoted to to preventing those activities than to figuring out what people should be doing. I'm just always suspicious of politicians or anybody that says, I have the answer and it is this certain technology or something like that. Maybe they're right. They very well could be right. But uh, I, I wouldn't put all um, my eggs in that basket and I just say, you know, let's uh, let's set the rules appropriately. Let's, you know, again, in this example, maybe we just decide we tax carbon, any emitters of carbon get taxed. And we let markets respond to those new signals and they figure out the solution. Yeah, I think that's great. Um, I do a lot of work in like business transformation and tech and innovation is a word that gets thrown around a lot. Um, and to the point where I feel like it doesn't mean anything. Uh, but I think, you know, true innovation is essentially what you're explaining. And the way that I always like to think about it is um, when you're looking at like a mountain and you see all these different like fractal patterns of the way that the water is flown, uh, you know, from the top of the mountain that create all these like cracks and crevices that uh, kind of pour out. Well, it, what the water is doing is it's finding the most efficient way towards whatever problem it's facing, right? So like it, it hits a hurdle, it hits a problem, it hits a, a crack or, you know, a, a boulder, and it's got to find its most efficient way through it. Um, and if you create a pressure in, you know, a system uh, that is sufficient enough, there is going to be a crack that, you know, that, that goes somewhere and it's going to burst out some type of innovation. Um, and, and I think there's a lot of, there's a, there's a lot of use in that in, in the sense of, you know, I, I like what you're saying, which is, you know, the government is good at identifying something's wrong. You know, let's, let's treat that, you know, issue adequately to the proportion of the problem that it is. Um, and then see what the market can come out of it as far as a more efficient means for whatever, um, you know, and, and I know wind farms, uh, that's, that's funny that you say that because, um, you know, at first, you know, the, the subsidies for wind farms were the point where the, the technology wasn't there enough to actually make it profitable to have the wind. And then you find out it's actually more windy at night. 
Um, so you're, you're getting more energy into the system when the grid is in you know, the least need, um, which, you know, it, there was some second order effects, at least from what I, when I was looking into this a few years ago, where some production was getting shifted to, to the night, but I mean, as a species, we're not very nocturnal. Um, so it didn't really work where in what you're saying is if you actually press pressure, what the issue is, you know, what can come out of it, um, is something more innovative and efficient than and actually solving the problem as opposed to just stamping it and seeing what unintended consequences you have to clean up later yeah yeah awesome well thank you very much is there anything else you want to add or i think uh i think that's it man we've <laughs> we've really been going we covered a lot of ground so uh yeah um and and I, I guess anything uh, that I think of later, well, we can uh, discuss in our next conversation. Yes, and you will come on to uh, in a few weeks to talk about the Jones Act. Yep. Uh, so yeah, thank you very much for your time. Thank you for for talking when it was you know late at night for you. And uh, yeah, I appreciate it. I'll, I'll, we can wrap in a second, but uh, thank you again. All right, I look forward to doing it again. <laughs>